0: Hey, what's up, dude? What's going on, man? Uh, Not much. Uh, I'm sitting in a dolphin-themed bedroom in East Peoria, Illinois. It's kind of bizarre and a little bit unsettling. One of the most bizarre Airbnbs that I've ever been in in my entire life. It's beach-themed. <laughs> well, your room is beach-themed, and then there's some other weird themes throughout the rest of the Airbnb. I have Kevin Jones, one of my favorite humans on the planet um, and easily one of my favorite frisbee throwers on the planet in the building. Um, We are going to kick off episode six of The Buzz and talk about, again, uh, going along with the theme that I have the past couple episodes, talking to players who started touring full time at a very low player rating in relation to the rest of the field. And Kevin, as we talk about this, is kind of the poster child for what I'm getting at. And he was one of the main reasons I wanted to start talking about this. Um, Kevin
1: is kind of a bizarre dude. He's kind of a go-getter. He's kind of a baller. Um, How you doing? We're at the World Championships. Yeah, I mean, it's been awesome. I've been here for a week and a half now. So I've played both courses plenty of times. And you feel pretty good? Yeah, really good. Yeah. What about Northwoods? Northwood is is going to be great. It's just, I think it's going to be a course that just doesn't separate quite as much as Eureka. I Mm -hmm. think it's a great compliment though to Eureka.
0: I love properties like that. I love that. It kind of matches the Vermont theme where it's got like the open with OB and then it also has the wooded property. Yeah. I like that too. I think that's what we need to move towards more in our sport but we're not necessarily talking about now. We're going to talk about where you came from and how you got to be where you're at now. Because right now, you're kind of living the, living the life. For sure. You're kind of living the life that a lot of people are dreaming of living. And, uh, well, at least young disc golfers that get to watch YouTube and see where you guys go and how you live. And uh, did you ever imagine, that, you know, having the season this year that you've had? I mean, now that you're starting to get recognized and having the contract that you have, is it... Was it something that you always thought you were going to have?
1: Always as in when? When you
0: started playing disc golf, did you imagine that this was what your life was going to be like? Absolutely not. Perfect. Great introduction. So, Kevin,
1: I want to start out where you actually came from. What was uh, childhood like for you? Where were you at? Uh, I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma in a pink hospital a pink hospital. That's right. What does that mean? I don't know. It's just... The color was pink? Yeah, it's literally <laughs> okay. really big and pink. And every, anybody from Oklahoma or Tulsa, for that matter, would probably know what I'm talking about. But my dad was a football coach at Broken Arrow High School. So uh, we lived there in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, right by Tulsa until I was in first grade when I moved to Greenwood, Arkansas. Okay. And did you move there just because your dad got a new job? Your mom exactly. got a new job? Okay.
0: Now... Looking at you right now, and I I know you and I are good friends, but like I had told you in the car right here, we hadn't we've never really gotten time to sit down and actually talk about who we are as people. So that's why I'm kind of excited about this episode. When I look at you, and as someone who's worked with children up until I really started playing disc golf, you seem like the kind of kid that would come to summer camp with all of your traveling sports gear on every single day. (laughs) You'd always wear your
1: gear, your hat. Was that, was that you? Yeah, I, <laughs> that was me, yeah. definitely. Um, so sports were your entire life as a kid? D- uh, yeah, I played pretty much any kind of competitive activity that you could pretty much think of. H- hockey? Were you a hockey guy? I played, I, like I had a hockey stick, uh-huh. or multiple hockey sticks actually, because I remember one year when I was probably six or seven years old, that's what I actually asked for for Christmas was hockey gear. Because when I lived in Tulsa, we would go to some hockey games and we'd go see the Tulsa Oilers play, which is like a <laughs> semi-pro team. Saw them probably like 15 times total. That's like a kid's dream. Like you have no idea like that there's so much farther below NHL, but
0: you just don't yeah. care because it's like the big time, you know? Oh, definitely. It was huge. So, so was, was the sports background because you were, were you very close with your dad as a kid? Was your dad kind of like a role model of yours?
1: Yeah, he was definitely a, a huge part of my life and pretty much when I was growing up I always kind of imagined that I was going to be a football player and play for him. Like day.
0: most ki- like most kids growing up that's what they wanted to be, you know, football player, basketball player, baseball player.
1: Yeah, I but, wanted to be a football player. But you really time. wanted to
0: be it. Big time. I wanted to at least kick in the NFL. How young were you when you like started thinking about that and then did you work towards that like throughout childhood? Like was that like an actual dream you tried manifesting?
1: So up until i was probably in first grade so however old that is six or five yeah yeah i didn't really care for football at all like i didn't really enjoy the games i told myself i didn't want to play but then right when i got to like a possibility for me to play football i was immediately into it big time playing little league tackle football starting second third fourth fifth grade I believe. were you always kicking Yeah, I I kicked. Really? Actually, that's one of the things that I did from quite a younger age because I remember kicking field goals at the Broken Arrow football stadium.
0: That's a really unique thing for a young kid to be dreaming of. It's like when Hank Hill and King of the Hills said that he wanted to grow up to be a propane salesman. Yeah. (laughs) Like everybody's like, oh, I want to be a quarterback in the NFL.
1: (laughs) I want to be a kicker. I know, right? It's like that's the best job in the NFL, but. Yeah. And that's what everybody says when I told them that was my dream. They're like, well, you got the best idea ever, man. That's probably
0: the easiest job. <laughs> so
1: so then you specialized in kicking from a young age and then
0: like, was that something you obsessed over all the time or did you switch between different sports
1: still at that time? Uh, I started switching in between sports around third, fourth grade, Okay, play, pretty much playing any sport I could play during that time. But kicking was something that was constantly in there and kind of slowly faded out by the time I was in high school uh-huh. just because like I could already, I could kick a 50 yard field goal. I didn't think there was much more in the tank for me. I don't know. I just did 50 didn't... yard field goal at what age? Uh, in high school. Whoa. it's pretty good. Yeah, it was Yeah, decent. Definitely, right?
0: definitely. Not a football master, but I, I imagine that's pretty far. Um, so, so you played football for forever and that was the thing you pretty much specialized in. um, and that was your whole life as a kid, right? It was just kind of a serious thing, always going to practices. and
1: Yeah, did starting. you had friends growing up in a neighborhood? Did you ride bikes around? Like um, Up until first grade, I did have kids in the neighborhood mm-hmm. that I was friends with. But once we moved to Greenwood in first grade, mm-hmm. I started to live in a neighborhood where there were no kids. So no, I didn't really go out on the street and mm-hmm. hang out. I had one neighbor friend that was like five to six years older than me that I would hang out, play golf with. I don't know. Like I swung the golf <laughs> club for, Sweet. for a long time.
0: Whoa. So, so you were a kid that kind of grew up in those, cru- like, not, nah, I wouldn't say crucial years, but like the years where a lot of kids are normally running around with neighborhood
1: kids. You kind of were on your own a lot. Yeah. I was at least playing some kind of sport, like mm-hmm. whether it was in my yard alone, because mm-hmm. I had basketball. I could play hockey with roller skates. Yeah. I could play soccer with my soccer goal. I could play golf. I had a lit- I literally had a hole digger to dig holes <laughs> in, in, in the grass yard and I'd play golf, man, too. So yeah. so you pretty much used your childhood
0: energy to just create things and, and stay active even without other kids in the neighborhood to, to play with, essentially.
1: Yeah, I think it was the drive to get good at them. I think it was always the drive. You love mastering drive. things. Yeah. I can tell you like mastering things. That's exactly what yeah. it is, honestly.
0: It feels good to be in control, and it feels good. And that's why I feel like you know disc golf and golf are things that you're very into because then it's, there's no teammates. It's just you and seeing how good you can get and how far you could take something. So, when did you, so when did you actually start playing disc golf? Like was it a like like was it during your football period
1: or like how how did that come to be? Well, I guess the football period would be from like second, third grade to the end of high school mm-hmm. and disc golf was starting in probably fourth grade. I honestly don't even know exactly, but 2009. Okay. Uh, is exactly when I pretty much found disc golf and mm-hmm. that was during summer camp, I think. Um, a, a church camp. Okay, and there was a nine-hole course there. I pretty much was just like super interested in what that was. I don't know. I liked the baskets, and then I realized that it's the rules of golf, but you play with frisbees. and, yeah. that, and that immediately kind of took interest in me. And so. your
0: solo imagination that you've had as a kid kind of took over. And the frisbee, I think personally, like whenever I would show my my preschoolers or my campers, I was a camp director for a little bit. Whenever I would show them a frisbee their imagination would just explode because especially an athletic kid, like can see how much they can do with it as opposed to a football or a baseball. And they they like kind of lose their mind. Like Mm I, I'd always have parents coming to me like, where can my, where can my kid play ultimate? Where can my kid play disc golf? And it it made me so sad at the time. And it actually kind of drove me to do somewhat what I'm doing now because there was nothing for these kids. Yeah. There's nothing for kids
1: that love Frisbee and kids like you have to figure it out yourself. Yeah, I think that's actually an interesting point. I think I've noticed from growing up, it was much easier to convince my fifth grade, sixth grade friend Mm -hmm. to come play disc golf with me instead of my high school or college friend. Exactly. It was much easier. Mm -hmm. And I wonder,
0: is it because when you're in high school, that's like a a lame thing to do, like play frisbee
1: or what? When you're in high school, you have almost decided – what you what you like and what you enjoy doing and so disc golf is it might come off as a little foreign you're trying to develop
0: an identity especially those crucial years between like you know 14 to like early 20s yeah you're busy you're busy and like you're trying to impress people you're trying to impress parents you're trying to impress friends you're trying to make friends and keep them and yeah i I definitely got made fun of in school for being the frisbee boy but (laughs) you know but you know that's just that's just what it goes you know what happens and Um, hopefully in the future we can give more avenues for kids to like, I love junior worlds and junior nationals, these tournaments that are popping up. It's amazing to give these kids a platform to actually feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. But, um, going back to you and and you said you found it at church camp and then, okay. So you said 2009 was when you found disc golf.
1: You know, it might've been 2008. Uh at that church camp that I actually threw the discs for the first time. But I think it was in 2009 that summer when I went back to the church camp Uh that I was like rooted. And I'm like, dang, I did this last time. I'm going to do it again. I want to be in control and the master at this game. Yeah. And 2009 is also when they designed the course a minute or two from my house. And so that was, Whoa. yeah, that was when I kind of got in there.
0: Fun transition here. You said 2008 was when you kind of found it. 2009 was when you're like, Oh, I'm at, I'm at church camp now. I'm the man. At, <laughs> I'm the disc golf <laughs> master. Now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm peeping at your two, your, uh, PDGA stats. And I see 2009, you you joined the PDGA. Your very first, mm-hmm. first year actually like getting into disc golf and you joined the PDGA. Right. That to me is so funny because it's it's go going along with the theme of like the players that jumped into disc golf full time very quick. Mm-hmm. Eric Oakley never played a single amateur tournament. Joined the joined the PDGA and went pro instantly. AJ's been playing since he was like you know five years old or six years old. Right. And in two thousand and nine, you joined the PDGA, and I'm going to peep your stats real quick. And you played one tournament <laughs> in November of two thousand and nine. Do you remember this tournament, the Battle yeah. at Bell Park?
1: Yeah, I do. I played intermediate, I believe. Yeah, and you got fourth place. Yeah, it's funny. I played uh, in intermediate. This is just so long ago to me. I played with a guy named Sam Dodd Jr.
0: Oh, yeah, and he won the tournament. He
1: did, didn't he? he yeah, here won. you go. Here you go. So he won. Here's the stats. Play. Yeah, and all these other people are guys that actually really rooted me in this sport, like Joseph Brandenburger and Matt Lloyd. Immediately, I see... Uh, it's really cool though. Sam Dodd is now on my uh, Cedar Creek disc golf team. Oh, really? So, yeah, he is. Uh, there's only three members on the team currently. And is that a course or what? What is that? It is a private course that the the owner is trying to make into c- kind of a disc golf resort. That's awesome. Yeah, it's in Fayetteville, Arkansas. It's really it's really cool. That's awesome. And so uh, Sam, apparently Sam Dodd, father Dodd. Yeah, is... yeah. I mean he's he's playing like advanced grandmasters now. So like he's. He's up there, and he—it's just really cool. So then,
0: talk about these people that, and you said you've said it a couple times. Rooted you
1: in this game. What what does that mean? Oh, uh, it's that's easy for me. I remember the first random Sunday that I went out was going to play around. Like I, I was kind of going pretty hard at disc golf at that time, mm-hmm. but not aware of any leaks or anything. Yeah. So I go there on a Sunday. Happened to be two o'clock. These guys had just started on hole three. Mm-hmm. It was guys named Roger Knight joseph Brandenburger, john turkey mcgowan matt lloyd and possibly this other guy named tony from arkansas <laughs> and tony yeah no very old school yeah. anybody from arkansas or in the fort smith area would would know who i'm talking about and um that those are the guys that they let me join their mm-hmm. their mini card i think they were gonna let me play through maybe uh-huh. saw me toss and was i i, I don't know they like w- the was way like you throw. let's let's play or something. Yeah. They just wanted to show me because I was just a thirteen year old kid that was just out alone
0: mm-hmm.
1: playing disc golf. They let me join. I saw what was possible in disc golf mm-hmm. all these huge heiser flip lines and massive putts that were just consistent, and they were putting like super hard like super firm putts, so yeah. I immediately adopted this super hard putt
0: It's crazy, it's crazy like. And I'm going to stop you
1: real quick for a, a quick blurb that I find fascinating.
0: When you're coming up, those are the guys that you watch, right? And those oh, yeah. are the guys that blow your mind. But in 2009, that's when Avery Jenkins was throwing 500 foot sidearms, you know, and there was barely any coverage of it. And nowadays we have kids growing up that are 13 years old that are throwing identical to Eagle McMahon because they have something to study. But it's it's crazy that yeah, you you got to be influenced by your local players. Mm-hmm. So then continue. Yeah, go ahead. Like that's, I think it's so interesting how our sport's progressing and how influential the production companies are that are giving these young kids something to mimic now.
1: Yeah. I mean, just back then, there just simply wasn't near as much footage. There was almost none. No. So we could watch what was around us. And I remember, like, I was always waiting for one of those huge pros to pass through, um, when I was when I was younger, and our local pros from the Tulsa area, which is three hours from mm-hmm. where I lived, was uh, Coda Hatfield and Devin Owens. Mm-hmm. And back in the day, they had one of the nastiest rivalries that I'd, I've ever even heard of. Like, it's unbelievable how bad these com- these guys competed against each other. And and bad, I mean good. Like, oh,
0: it's amazing. And I've heard stories from Devin about him and Coda battling it out in Oklahoma. It's
1: those guys would tear insane. up the course.
0: Yeah, and they were truly fueled by beating one another yes and that's i feel
1: like you kind of thrive on that too you love that mm-hmm. definitely that's so, definitely a, a big help in the game you got to be really competitive have that competitive spirit so so
0: that's who drove you and you got kind of rooted you found a place where you belonged in the sport um when when did you go pro when did you
1: well when did you move to open at least do you do you know that by chance i know that i started playing open tournaments at kind of a, like a, Around the age of 14 As when I played the f- my first open tournament But I'm not quite sure like, how I did I know I lost a few um, In a row This is going to be like the 2011 era And you were 14 years old When you went open Right, 14 was when I played the, My first open events It's not when I accepted cash uh, I'm looking at 2011 You won a B tier And you denied cash Let's check 2010 Wow, did I play open? Okay, I played one open tournament in 2010, Battle at Bell Park, the same tournament that was my first. In tournament one year, ever. one year difference. Wow, that's true. I didn't even <laughs> realize that. <laughs> Getting fourth in intermediate, yeah. and then you bust up and move to open. I guess so. I guess I was one to. to I guess I that's realized sorry. that back then you could make like way. You could win way many, way more discs mm-hmm. <laughs> if you like, because they would let you exchange cash for discs. So. I could. I actually remember. And then 2011. That's right. I played. I played you, a couple divisions, but open in a few specific ones, and I ended up winning the 16th Hell on the Border, which is a tournament 30 minutes from my house. Coda Hatfield was there. Um, Donald Ellsworth. Donald Ellsworth was there. Adam Hunt. Adam Hunt. If you do you know Adam Hunt? I've heard of him. I
0: remember seeing his name around when I was yeah kind of younger cool. coming that's up. Cool.
1: He uh, he's another guy I looked up to big time
0: there were a lot of ridiculous players in the mid 2000s that like, you know, they, they just started touring at the wrong time and there just wasn't enough you know sponsorship money and prize money and they, they could have been amazing, you know, amazing players but yeah, you come up how old are you? You were 959 rated Kevin Jones, mm-hmm. coming up here beating all these thousand rated players Cota Hatfield is 1015 rated yeah. and he's won so many tournaments, <laughs> yeah. 959 rated Kevin Jones goes 1019, 997 thousand eight to win by two over Donald Ellsworth, who's a baller, too. And then you deny the cash.
1: Yeah, this is one of my best memories. Like, literally one of my favorite memories in my what life. What
0: was your game like at that time? Do you remember? Yeah. What were
1: you throwing back then? I had a decent sidearm. I could sidearm it, like, 350. And that was about my max, mm-hmm. so I remember... Like a flex shot? Uh, flat to... Flat to fade? Probably flat to fade. Mm-hmm. Um... But I also had a a really sweet backhand. Like I could flip mids over pretty pretty well. So you learned kind of the right way. Yeah, I de- I had really solid form. Pretty much everybody that had seen me had told me that. Was it because you played with the old school players coming up? I think that was a big time help teaching you like
0: how to actually flip a disc and control the you know break points and everything like that. Definitely, that's sweet that's instead of like you and your five buddies getting into it together all throwing like champion bosses you know like flexing them so you actually learn the right way you come up 959 rated and you apparently make enough putts and win
1: yeah that pretty much I remember there was there was like a there was a gallery also it was probably 50 people in the gallery That's sick! Such a cool memory. Like I was shaking up there, and I just remember just I made enough putts to win. That's pretty much what it came Mm -hmm. down to. I slipped a couple, just real sneaky putts just in there, and (laughs) ended up capitalizing on the last two holes to to solidify it. That's yeah. I got to lay up my last putt, and that was your first pro win. Yes, that's so sick. Yeah. And you were, not, again,
0: 959 rated. Like, that's another common theme. Eric Oakley had the same thing. He won an A tier when he was 960 rated. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's nutty. And he beat all sorts of good players. And, like, you don't see a lot of players with that low a player rating winning tournaments like that. But pretty much what that shows
1: is, like, the peaks were already high for you. Yeah, it shows that ratings, as people have said, ratings don't matter for what you can do. It's what you have done. It's what you've done in the past, yeah. and that, so that's that to me is what's so interesting. So um, I'm going to fast
0: forward a tiny bit. I'm going to go through actually 2012. Let's just real quick look, and you only play two tournaments. Is just is this just because?
1: You're still preoccupied with football at this time. Well, are you talking? I in 2011, I played more than two. I just played two in open. I played a bunch of advanced. I'm saying in 2012. I'm moving forward a year. Then you're getting into my my sophomore year of high school. Okay. I didn't play any disc golf for sophomore, junior, or senior because you year were taking football a bit more seriously. I, I, I played three different sports. I literally mm-hmm. dropped disc golf. Thought about it. I and never even thought about it. Yeah. I thought I would never pick up discs again. I didn't even consider. Mm-hmm. consider it that's actually right after that tournament like very very soon after that tournament mm-hmm. yeah did this So happen. you're just like
0: eh, it's all good and then and then you moved on and then it looks like you even took a break in 2014 you just didn't even sign up for the pdga uh, it doesn't
1: surprise me yeah yeah
0: so then let's let's see real quick so i want to get into something else that, kind of the next section so clearly in disc golf you're proving yourself as capable of winning but like you know you're at the time you're playing tournaments where you're scrapping for three, $400 and eh, whatever you're yeah. a football player. You know, you have
1: way bigger dreams ahead of you. Right. You didn't necessarily follow through with the football thing. Did you not? Not really. I played one year of college football mm-hmm. and going into that off season, I had decided that I was good. I had done plenty burnt out or what? burnt out partially it, you know really it was I didn't want to just kick I, di- I didn't want to just kick the dream finally and imploded go, on you and <laughs> go through every well I could kick it really good I just didn't want to only kick on the field when it came down to games and work just as hard as all these other players honestly I, I felt like I could possibly be used at receiver or some other mm-hmm. position I would have liked to rep those positions but it just never ended up happening and I yeah I just Decided I was good. I didn't want to just kick, and I actually uh, kind of fell on disc golf. There at that point, I'm like, I just start making some money in disc golf again,
0: and just still scrapping, you know, local tournaments. Right? You weren't like going to all the big ones.
1: No, only local, like Arkansas, yeah. maybe Oklahoma, definitely Tulsa. Because
0: as an athlete, you have to stay competitive, and that's the thing. Like I've noticed with a lot of players on tour, is like doesn't matter what sport it is, they they just need to compete at something. You know, I I was yeah. hearing I was hearing that uh, there are players that will just. They'll gamble over coin flips just because they love playing games. Yeah. They don't care what it is. And um, for you, you started playing disc golf again. You played one year of college football. You dropped out of college, right? Uh,
1: yeah, about a year after that.
0: Yeah. So then, I, I kind of know what happens, you know, to you. But I think it's a really uh, well. What happens? I want you to tell me. Okay. What ha- What was your next step in your journey as a human
1: being? So. I dropped out of college in 2016. I think I went through the winter semester of 2016. So it got me exactly two years through college. And what school was it? Arkansas Tech University. And I was studying Spanish education. I was going to be a Spanish teacher. Okay. Uh, I practiced the crap out of Spanish. Mm -hmm. So this is actually a really similar thing to like what we were talking about earlier, how I just like to master things. Mm -hmm. I got that bug with Spanish and I worked my butt off at Spanish trying to be the white guy that could just blabber off yeah. Spanish, and yeah. I loved that feeling. <laughs> and I ended up – I was really good at it. Like, my my teachers in college loved me. Like, I mm-hmm. easily A- got A's in all of those classes. Tests were really easy and stress-free, but I wasn't totally satisfied with myself. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I was, like, that natural just, like – nonchalant Spanish speaker that I wanted to be. You had to take it to the next level always, yeah. being the person that you are. And by the way, everybody <laughs>
0: listening to this, when Kevin said that he loved being the guy that could blabber Spanish, he rolled his eyes to the back of his head. He, <laughs> <laughs> he really, really <laughs> loved it. So, um, and It's funny how you can never contain your excitement, even on the disc golf course. But yeah. please continue. What happens next?
1: Um, so, I'm done with half of college and I get to a point where I'm like, I want to do something crazy. I'm kind of bored in, in school. I'm getting a, exactly a three-point GPA, which is just fine, but nothing special. If
0: you're a good student, 3.0 is like the budgeting the the classes you can skip. Yeah. You're like, Yeah, eh,
1: you know, I'll just pass all the tests. Yeah. That was pretty much me. And what I wanted to do was make make me really a valuable Spanish teacher was my real goal. And so what I did was I had been on a couple mission trips already through high school into Nicaragua um, through a group called Project Hope. They do incredible work. They build houses in Nicaragua, just like really efficient houses. They do it every summer. And I had made a friend that was a translator over there, and he pretty much told me, hey, Kevin, uh, you're pretty cool. Like, If you ever want to come to Nicaragua, you can come stay with me. I'll make it work for you, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, it's just one of those things. And I was just like, okay. Whoa. You said, "All right, I'll take you up on that."
0: (laughs) He probably was like, "Oh, exactly! Shoot, I didn't know he was going to do that."
1: Exactly. That's awesome. So then, how did that play out? You just I bought a plane ticket and I (laughs) decided I wasn't going to do the next semester of college, so I just didn't sign up for classes. Was your family supportive? Yeah, they were cool with it because the initial plan was one half year and right back to it, (laughs) you know, kind of. So that that was the initial plan. Go and. I'm still playing the crap out of disc golf right before Mm -hmm. I go to Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. I actually got really solid. like I was playing, winning quite a few tournaments, playing Mm -hmm. really good. Pro Discus reaches out to me Mm -hmm. right before I go to Nicaragua, and they're like, hey, we want you to tour in the RV. Uh, Whoa. Yeah, we want you to tour in the RV. We want you to throw in Pro Discus. We'll get you everything you need. And I'm like, well, I literally already have a plane ticket. I'm going to Nicaragua, and I'll be back in July.
0: What a crazy thing to happen to you. Was that just completely out of
1: nowhere? Exa- yeah, it was. It was. And this is like something Did you that... you know Kai Vesa at all before that? No, but it wasn't through Ooh. Kai. It was a guy named Baker Helton from Arkansas who oh, was, okay. at sense. was put in charge okay. of the Pro Discus RV by Kai and told to find a player that's worthy of traveling in the RV and touring. I see. So Baker reached out to me right before I was going to Nicaragua, I said, hey, I'll be back in July, though. And they're like, okay, no problem. And I'm like, that was the surprising part to me was that they were cool with me going away for four months exactly, coming back and immediately hopping in the RV and touring. It makes me wonder,
0: and I don't know know what your full belief system is in this, but it's kind of almost too quaint that the moment you decide to take a big step, and put yourself up against the wall, all these other doors are opening for you. Makes me wonder what would have happened if you stayed in college. Like, would would Pro Discus have done the same thing? Or, you know, you just never know. But For sure. That's crazy. So now you have have multiple levels to your life that are building upon each other. So you went to Nicaragua knowing you were going to come back and tour.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Whoa. Which is really weird because you take four months off of disc golf and man and the world catches up to you yeah you lose it real fast you can't really do that
0: and there's no disc golf in
1: nicaragua none we but we could go off on a tangent Mm -hmm. but we got some discs over there Mm -hmm. i brought some discs also and i actually hung a towel up in our clothes drying rack (laughs) outside in the little front yard and i could hit like however long putts i wanted to into that towel which is a great idea if you don't want to buy a basket yeah just hang yeah. up a shirt or a towel or something it literally just wraps around the disc if you and it's quiet oh it's yeah silent
0: so for all you husbands and wives <laughs> out there with spouses that don't like your chains in the house shirt basket yes <laughs> by kevin jones i like it i I love it. I didn't know that about you. So you practiced the whole time you were there. No,
1: not not even close. Maybe once a week at at best.
0: Okay. So then, what was mainly your life
1: like? Okay. We want to get into that. It was. I'd love it. Yeah. I mean, I woke up at four twenty every morning, Mm -hmm. and we would. I lived with a family of four: a dad, a mom, an eight-year-old and a three-year-old girl, Mm -hmm. eight-year-old boy, three-year-old girl. They all moved into one single room of their three rooms, one being the living room slash kitchen, and they let me have the other room to myself for four months. Whoa. But on one condition that I woke up with them every morning to read one chapter of Hebrews and do a song and do a prayer. Every, every morning? Every morning. But it actually worked really good with my schedule mm-hmm. because at, by the second month... Of the four, I found a job in a mall where I taught English, and it was perfect. I actually I also bought a motorcycle <laughs> for $700 and had a means of transportation mm-hmm. over to my job, which was a 45-minute drive, or three buses, three different public transportation buses that I would also take sometimes <laughs> when the motorcycle didn't work or any other kind of problems yeah. aris- arised. Whoa. So like, and then you taught English taught English really easy oh yeah I mean it was so easy like they would give me a class of 10 to 15 kids Mm -hmm. that already were on the level that I was supposed to pull out a book read them through the book Mm -hmm. there was activities in the book and literally just do conversation with them and and be a little bit creative and make them want to learn you know were
0: you in a uh were you in a neighborhood where the kids were under underprivileged I guess was it in a a poor area or was it just a standard income area the place that I lived was very poor income. Okay. Were the kids, um, were they different than standard kids in the U.S.? Like, was there something different? I mean, I, I've i met people that have worked with kids in those areas, and they say that they're just a lot more grateful,
1: and they're just happier kids overall. Is that true? Yeah, well, a lot of them. A lot of them definitely yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: clearly not all of them are going to be happy-go-lucky, yeah. but...
1: Um, it, it's more of a family the difference that i see is more of their family unity they're much more they they don't move out of the house when they're 18 years old they stay with their their parents I see. and they maybe work for their parents or just live at home you know they they live together forever almost the yeah. grandpa usually lives at the house or at least next door like something like that that's huh but uh, it was interesting because I lived in a very poor part, but I worked in a really rich part. So I was okay. teaching a lot of um, richer people's I kids. I see. Okay. Because our classes were they were really expensive for Nicaragua. I see. That makes sense. Okay. Well,
0: Kevin, so you take this big leap that not a lot of people take. You drop out of school to go do this. And then, and then you come back and you say, I'm, I'm done with school.
1: And then you went straight into the ProDiscus RV. Yeah, that's what. Luckily, Prodiscus or Baker was cool with it. He was cool with me going for four months and then coming immediately back and just starting to tour. And what year was this? Two thousand seventeen. Two thousand seventeen. Two thousand seventeen mm-hmm. was when you started
0: touring. Yep. I hope people realize that. Like I want. <laughs> like I have this big grin on my face because I'm not surprised that in a 2017, Kevin. We're going to look at what your rating was the very first tournament you played that year, the Greater Nashville Open, presented by Prodigy Disc. You made $195.
1: I felt great about that, too. I, there was I a bet. lot of players there. I'd never traveled to Nashville. This is really cool. This is a really cool year because four months, I'm in Nicaragua. Yeah. Yeah. And then you come back in January. No. No, four months of two thousand seventeen. I was in Nicaragua. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So this is prior to you leaving. This, this correct. Okay. This is just up to that. Like Greater Nashville Open, fifth place. I played a tailgating at White Hawk, which I just let's just humor me and check it out. Dude. <laughs> check out. Check out tailgating. But, at but White tell Hawk. the fans what your rating was
0: at that time. Uh, nine seventy eight. Nine seventy eight, two years ago. Oh wow, Kevin, that was only two years ago. That's pretty cool. You sit before me.
1: What are you now? Ten Six. Nutcase. <laughs> <laughs> but go, go on. Go ahead. Oh, man. I mean, so after Greater Nashville, that was a cool one. Uh, I played tailgating at White Hawk, which is uh, the Black Hawk course in Tulsa, one of my all-time favorite courses. Super amazing. And I shot um, like a nine, uh, high 900-rated first round. And then a ten, one of my highest rated, my highest rated round ever at the time, ten sixty seven rated. Oh my, God. as a nine seventy
0: eight rated player, the to peaks were high. Come
1: from behind from the chase card to win that tournament, which was Devin Owens' tournament, and I don't know what it was, but I felt like two hundred and thirty five dollars for twelve people was a lot. And you at beat that Bo time. Tillman. It's a great player. Yeah, he was. Fan- he is fantastic. Still yeah, fantastic for sure. So 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 then you go to. Let's see.
0: When did you come back? When was your very first tournament full-time disc golfer, Kevin? That was... Was it in 2017? uh, Yes. Battle at Beach Bend. The Battle at Beach Bend. Another hot tournament, $165. (laughs) (laughs) You, You lost to Logan Bowers and Dutch Napier. Yeah. But even after that, Kevin Jones goes from 978 at the at the Greater Nashville Open to 997 I believe it says or what is it 995 995 rated Kevin Jones. So coming up quick that 1067 round clearly helped you. <laughs> so so then you just started and did you ever go through a slump period or like what was it like just starting out on the road in the Pro Discus RV as a
1: sub-scratch rated player that really hasn't been playing a lot of disc golf recently? Um, I don't know. It wasn't, all, it wasn't all that bad. The biggest thing about the Pro Discus RV for me was the gas was paid.
0: That's, so then it was just perfect for you? You just got to hop in? Yeah.
1: yeah. I would pay for my tournaments. But the thing is, I would cash at, pretty, mm-hmm. at most all tournaments. So I wasn't really losing a ton of money. Like exactly. I would at least get my money back yeah. for placing whatever last cash I was close to. Did they pay your tournaments at the time or no? No, no. Okay. That's what I was saying. I, I just paid my own tournaments. The deal was they paid the gas, yeah. which is extremely... Huge. Like, and you got
0: the lodging covered.
1: Yeah, that's With so Army, much money.
0: Which not many players get that chance right off the bat, especially when they're at 978 and they get that offer. That's
1: incredible. But clearly, you had been earning it at the time. I guess it was tournaments like that tailgating at White Hawk is is a really good indicator of oh wow ten sixty seven he's got some potential. Reese. Exactly. Like, exactly, exactly.
0: So then you go and then you're you're kind of rolling and I actually had seen a couple of videos of you at the time like oh like so and so Kevin Jones you know smashing a drive on this <laughs> hole and I'm like I don't know who this kid is and then I looked you up and I was he's like oh it's like. You were like close to my rating at the time and I was like, Oh, he's pretty good. I just never heard of him and whatever. And then all of a sudden, like you start playing the big ones.
1: And Ledgestone was the first big one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ledgestone was the first big one. And you get 82nd. Yep. So what was that like? What happened?
1: Did, was it nerves or you just weren't ready for that style of golf? It was a combination of so many things. Honestly, that's at the that's a point where I'm like, whoa. Can I do this? Like, Anthon shredded. That was the, that he year. won by he what, like 10 or something like that? Killed it, man. He so killed it. And yeah, I just wasn't shooting near those rounds. I didn't see that as a possibility. But then I just realized the next year that the shots were very repeatable and mm-hmm. I can do this. But it was a, a combination of just kind of not handling situations very well mm-hmm. when strokes mean so much on the course. Mm-hmm. Every single stroke. Yeah.
0: So then moving into 2018, you, I mean, you have a great finish at the USDGC in 2017, and that's when I first heard your name. Right. You got 18th. Mm. That's what it says. Okay, cool. I'm pretty sure. Unless you, unless you see something different. No, I don't see it. Um, United States Disc Golf Championship, 18th place. You were on lead card at one time at that tournament, right? Yep. So then that was your first time, like, people knowing who you are.
1: Yeah, that and that was what better time to do that, to get on lead card. It was There was so much feedback from that. Because you were smashing, and you were in the distance competition too, right? You were throwing across Lake Winthrop that year? Right. I qualified for the distance comp and got to throw across the lake. Dude, I immediately gained so many fans from that that I was just so grateful for. That really shot me off into the next year.
0: So then the question after that tournament, because that's when I started being like, okay, Kevin's like... I don't know you. We're still not friends yet. We still, like, I don't even know how we, we met, but I was like, okay, this kid's this kid's kind of sick, right? When people started to have more expectations of you, what did you love that, or was it kind of weird at first? Yeah,
1: I mean... I get mixed answers when I ask people this question. It's definitely a little weird, but people seeing expectations in you is just... The way I take it is they believe in you, and... They know your potential, just yeah. like you know your potential. So you shouldn't necessarily see it as pressure. You should just see it as that feedback that you've been looking for. And that's that, what you saw
0: it as at the time.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And you like, loved it. Oh yeah, I'm like finally. Like I, I knew I was this good. I kind of knew I had. I knew I had the shots at least. Yeah. Like so. It was really cool to hear other people really, really push for me just after the Simple Lead Card appearance. Oh, yeah. And First time on Jomez ever. Like, never been filmed before. Which is... Really? And you Never that- been filmed before. Yeah. That's like, amazing. I always seem to just miss be- having my mm-hmm. chance being filmed.
0: So then you finally got on the biggest stage. Yeah. And it, what's crazy is... So you start this whole season at 978. Now you're 1,007. Now you're moving over the scratch level. And you're... So are you just practicing every day or what like what what were you doing that year definitely were you just hustling
1: practicing every day like ever since i got back in from nicaragua i had i had been practicing almost every day being in the rv you know it was easy Mm -hmm. if i wasn't playing a tournament i was either practicing for the tournament or Mm -hmm. traveling to the next tournament yeah so tons of time spent on the course tons of
0: time you start getting more fans you embrace it like crazy and it's, it's weird in our sport because it's such an intimate community and there's really no guidelines as to, like, like say after European Open, like, I watched Ricky tap out on an 18 and then just get swarmed by hundreds of people to, like, sign autographs. You know, there's, like, no escape from how, like, how close the community is to the players. Mm-hmm. And you've definitely gathered a ton of fans. You do all the commentary and all this, you know, other stuff. But um, you move to 2018. So you finish this great season. 2018, you're still with Pro Discus right right you're still yeah. with pro Destiny. i re-signed with them re-signed with them for 20 for just one year 2018 yes. and did, what was your off season like that was mm. did you do anything particularly different i know aj took uh this most recent off season very seriously and it changed his routines and how he pretty much treats his entire life did anything change for you or
1: yeah, because now it's your job. Now it's your full-time job. Yeah, not really. Honestly, like I kind of kept the same kind of routine that I had, and just kind of kept going with it. You know, practicing pretty much every day. I took a little bit of break. That's what I was doing. Definitely, I was playing Fortnite a lot <laughs> that break. <laughs> yeah. That was around when I kind of <laughs> figured out what Fortnite was, and so I got addicted to it. You know, uh, for a good, a good month. I mean, it was it was like. It was it was good for me. It was good for me to not have to be on the course for all of December, yeah. you know. So, I still played, but in my free time I was just playing Fortnite.
0: I think there's merit though to be to be doing something in your spare time that's still execution focused because it keeps your brain in that mindset. Because, like, to play Fortnite well, you still have to be focused the whole time. Yeah. You know, and, and for those of you who don't know what Fortnite is, I hope you do, because the World Cup champion just made $3 million. It's a huge game. It's pretty much a video game that's just like the Hunger Games. Yeah. Drop you into an island, and you have to survive and kill other people. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And that's... T- so, to me, it's like, my, my way of doing that is music, and it helps my brain stay in the whole, like, execution mindset of, like, get this done, do this thing, like brain and body kind of like working together. So I don't think, you know, I feel like that's not bad, you know, to, be I would co- to have still to agree. be competing, you know, yeah. to still compete in something. Um, So you took a, you took a little break to play f- Fortnite.
1: I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to, if, anything, <laughs> if anything, that was a pretty normal off season. Honestly, I was staying at home in Arkansas with my family, mm-hmm. didn't do anything crazy. And then just practiced and practiced d- December and January and then left to tour soon after. So then your first full year touring. You were in Nicaragua still
0: in 2017. Yep. So in 2018, your very first year, which boggles my brain, Kevin. Your first year touring was 2018.
1: First full year touring. Yeah. I started half. You're only halfway a year
0: behind me. You're only a, a year ahead of me. I, I suppose so. I suppose so, brother. <laughs> well, hold on. We're gonna move into 2018 because this is this is gonna be the last like big section that I talk about, and then obviously we'll cap it off with you. <laughs> Your 2018 season's crazy. You played 41 events. Wow. <laughs> like,
1: I just why not? <laughs> why not play a tournament when you're already on the road? Like, it's not like I'm just going to go.
0: There's barely that many weeks in a year. <laughs> and you're playing C-tiers and B-tiers. And so so you have one of the highest cashing seasons out of anybody in the entire world. Yeah, man. That's true. And you were in Nicaragua for four months. The, the year before, yeah. and you come back and you're just like, oh, okay, I'm just gonna show up and blah, 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 per great season. What was the, is it just a natural progression for you? Like, are you, as time goes by, are you, it, are, are other routines popping up that you used to not have? Are you taking something more seriously than you used to, or is it just business as usual for you, and the mastery obsession
1: is just continuing? There was just so much daily hard work That went into it, and I slowly just started to figure out the game on a professional Uh level, you know? I had nice routines, you know? Just uh, being an athlete. Yeah, well, that and just playing every day Mm -hmm. and understanding different strokes of shots. For me, that was, like, the biggest thing for me, understanding that your Heiser angles Uh and your Anheuser angles for each way that you throw have Mm -hmm. different timings, Mm -hmm. and they're extremely repeatable Mm -hmm. and if you can just hone in on that and really focus on that specific angle and kind of only work on a certain hyzer angle a certain flat angle and a certain anhyzer angle and then uh, analyze the course Mm -hmm. and make it work for the course Mm -hmm. that was when i kind of started seeing the most improvement and pretty much taking that you know
0: ability to hit angles with certain speeds and then just switching out the equipment for the necessary shape you know, I I think you know your equipment better than almost anybody I play with, and I think that's one of the biggest possible things that if there's a new player listening to this, don't buy every new disc that comes out. I know this is counterintuitive for both of our sponsors, <laughs> but like, but it's fact. Like, look at the top players in the game; they take a mold and they they master the mold. Nate Doss had like three predators in his bag that were like flippy. Yep, you know. And and he just mastered them, and that's and that's so crucial. And I feel like you do that very well, and it makes the game simple for you. Yep. Biggest thing that I want to talk about, and I met you in 2018. I don't know. I don't remember where me and you met, but I was like, this guy's a homie. This guy's kind of a straight up homie, and I kind of want to play catch with him. <laughs> and then we did. And then I, you told me something about courses, and I want people listening to this to pay close attention. We hear the typical TD complaint of. I worked so hard to run this tournament and the touring pros came through and they ripped my course apart as in they complained about it nonstop. Yeah. Why would I run this tournament again? And you and I were speaking last year and you might not remember this, but it stuck with me. You're like, yeah, I just see every course as a puzzle and I just go in there and it's my job to solve the puzzle and then I leave. That's what I believe. And I think, I think you, that's what it was, Utah. Cause I, the Mulligan's course broke my brain. I'm, I'm yet to shoot a 1000 rate a round at that course. Hmm, yeah, I don't know why. It, it just broke my brain in half, and I was, you know, of course, you resort to complaining about it because clearly if I can't shoot well on it, then the course is terrible because I'm God's little gift to earth as a Frisbee player, sure. which is not, not true at all. <laughs> Very irrational to think that, but courses like that can put you on the defensive mentally, and uh, I, I love that mindset. That's our job. If we choose to sign up for a tournament, it's our job to solve the course as it is. Objectively. We don't need to bring emotion into this. Like, who are we gonna impress by complaining about a course? To? Yeah, you're not gonna
1: change it. No. It is what it is. And you decide the score that you can achieve every time when you mm-hmm. play it and you're factoring risks and rewards. No matter how you know trash the course is, there is a strategy to be yeah. had. The tournament is gonna have a winner. Yeah. Like it's not like <laughs> It's not like the why course not is you? bad, so why not you? Yeah, the tournament will have a winner, mm-hmm. and it'll have everybody that caches. Uh-huh. So just keep keep going. I love it. Keep executing shots. Mm-hmm. I
0: love it, and I'm going to continue going on 2018 real quick before we cap this off. Let me just keep. It just it's easy to pick any tournament from your 2018 season and be like, oh, let's talk about this one. But I want to talk about. Let's go down the list here. Let's see. You play. There's many. There's many tournaments to scroll through. There's 41, <laughs> um, <laughs> 41 events. <laughs> you sicko. Um, okay. Third place at USDGC. Oh wow. You psychopath. Wow. That's crazy. You go 18th place after being in Nicaragua for four months. I'm just a year. cool gonna be A year. You know. And you, you know, but then a year later comes by and you get third place at the biggest tournament. I would say almost even more prestigious than the world sometimes. 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 I mean, it depends, but it's a huge tournament. For sure. And that's that's pretty much almost like your last tournament of the year. You, you played still like eight tournaments after that, but <laughs> that's nothing for you. Um, You get third at USDGC. You're capping off your season. You really finished pretty well, and then you signed with Prodigy. How did that all come about?
1: Well, I mean, at that point in my career, I realized that I could benefit a company and mutually benefit a company, you know? So I just knew that I needed to have every option in front of me. And everybody was calling you. In one way or another.
0: Yeah. Every company probably had been like, hmm, I wonder what Kevin Jones's price is. And then Prodigy was just a relationship thing that you built and and
1: you trusted them and kind of went forward with it. Sort of. I mean, as as a disc golfer, it's really important for us to see the big picture and to understand that this is what we want to do until we're forty at least. Hopefully. Yeah. And Prodigy is just they were immediately willing to just make this my life. And they and, see the potential in me, even at this point. You're saying all these great finishes and, and everything, but it just it didn't really feel like that. And of I hadn't not. done anything absolutely outstanding, mm-hmm. you know? And so, to your standards, of course. To my standards, of I course. suppose. And Prodigy saw the potential in that and, and, and invested in that. Yes. Yeah. And it's been a good partnership have, so far? It's been an amazing partnership. Awesome. Like Prodigy is doing extremely well right now. The mm-hmm. content that's coming out is unreal. People that have never thought about pro- throwing Prodigy are throwing Prodigy now. Good. That's the goal. That's and it makes you feel about. valued. Yes.
0: Which is kind of uh, the next step in everything. You're supposed to feel valued. And uh, now you, as a product, you know you're a product now. <laughs> you are, and it's it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Um, 2019 happens, and you're staying in the most bizarre, elaborate, huge Airbnb I've ever seen. So clearly, they're taking care of you well. They're getting you, you know, nice places to stay. They've gotten you to Europe. What's the end game for you, Kevin? What do is, you have one? What is the end game? Just you want me to define it in general? Yeah. So let me explain like, my. Where do me, I stop? No, 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 no. It's almost like, where does it begin? So, here's, let me explain my end game real quick, and maybe you can extrapolate the information from that. You got some nice sweaty pits there, buddy boy. Thanks. And extrapolate is a word I've never heard before. Oh, this is exciting. I'll explain that to you, then you can extrapolate the information from that. <laughs> um, so, uh, take away from would be a nice example of the word extrapolate. What can you take from my end game? Okay. My end game is a disc golfer. Once I get to a point where I can't play anymore is to be in a position similar to what I'm doing now, but with full creative control to work with the company's marketing department to carry out maybe some unorthodox promotional campaigns, or maybe run a podcast on the side and advertise for other companies. So what's, what's your, is your end game just to play until you are a hall of famer and win a bunch of world championships?
1: Uh, that's my goal right now. Yeah. Okay. yeah, my Great. goal right now is to play and Just win checking. as many tournaments as I possibly can. But in the extremely long run, I like the idea of designing discs, working at the mm-hmm. machine, working on different molds. I hope, I hope that
0: eventually, I'd like to hear your take on this. If you do like disc design, because honestly, I kind of knew what your end game was, but I, I didn't know you liked disc design. I knew <laughs> you're a competitor at heart, and you want to take this as far as you possibly can and hopefully win as many worlds as you can clearly what are your thoughts on this eventually since we've pretty much maxed out every every shape of disc we can with the current standards right like like how often is something new going to come out i'm not quite sure i want them to open the floodgates on the disc design standards i want to see almost anything possible
1: yeah. What are your round. thoughts? What
0: do you? I mean, it has to resemble a. I can't be a freaking spear,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but, or a boom. I mean, maybe a boomerang could be legal <laughs> in a specific tour, but like, what? Like, what are your thoughts? Like, do, like, if you like this design, like, do you want? Are you cool with the standards saying the
1: same that they are all like forever? Do you want them to change at all? I, man, I I just have to kind of disagree. I think that each. All these discs that come out under these different companies and their own machines mm-hmm. or wherever they're making the discs mm-hmm. come out differently and are unique to themselves. And I don't know if I don't know how we. I'm open to the idea, but I don't know how we would make more regulations for for discs to be made or like I want less regulation. I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how they would actually do that while keeping a disc safe. You know, that's that's an important thing. You can't make them heavier. Like that's can't make them heavier. But like if you get blasted in the head with a D1, it's going to hurt but at least it won't cut you in half like
0: well, <laughs> You're right about that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> at least it won't like literally murder you. We don't need buzzsaws, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to make
0: buzzsaw dudes. <laughs> and I don't think they would fly very good, but I just I I have to think that if they if they just for like one year, they were like, "You know what? Every company show me what you got." <laughs> and we'll make a game de- game day decision on whether it's legal or not. I would love to see what the companies are capable of especially with how much money like all these different companies Prodigy Discraft Innova like they have some cash in the bank and I would love to see some unorthodox designs and I would love to see pros throwing these unorthodox designs to see if they actually you know maybe for a player like yourself who can throw properly maybe it's a disc that only a pro player is capable of making fly you know Yeah
1: I don't know well maybe one day Kevin you can make something cool for us That's that would be awesome <laughs> And I would just argue that some of the discs each company's mm-hmm. discs themselves are are very unique. Oh, definitely. Definitely unique,
0: but I'm saying in flights in general, there's not too many like well the shapes dist- of the flights,
1: like how they fly. Yeah,
0: just like the things that a player can do with them. Like when when are we going to see a 13500? You know, when are we going to see a d- distance driver that flies like a
1: putter? I don't know if we ever will. I think that's too hard because each disc would do that differently according to the person's arm speed
0: but that's what i'm saying it would be designed specifically for a pro player like specifically yeah. for somebody who can get a disc up to speed you know maybe it's your signature disc but it you know i i don't know that's just what i'm thinking i like, I like it and, I, and all i'm asking kevin is for you to make it for us one day well happily all right well until then we have many more years of you playing disc golf because you love it and you love it almost more than anybody i've met Besides maybe myself. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Maybe ma- myself. You might love it more, which is fun to even think about. Um, you are one of my favorite people on the planet, and I wish you the best of luck at Worlds. Um, I'm probably going to whoop your butt, <laughs> but, hey, you know, it's okay. Everybody, you know, has to lose sometime. Bring
1: it on. All right, dog.
0: Um, any closing words from you, man?
1: Um. Well, you came to me today, and you said the main thing that you wanted to talk about was... What was it that made me believe that I could do it? Right. Yeah. Like when I was, like when I was that 970, 60 rated player. Like, what was, what is it that that person needs to hear mm-hmm. to jump out on tour? Right. Yeah. For the 960, 970 rated player right now listening to this, what is it? This is for you. If you watch those videos, and you truly to believe in yourself that you can do those shots that you see, well, maybe not those insane, over the top lines. But just those straight 350, 400-foot shots and repeat them. And if you just think you can do that, you can do it. That's what it comes down to. It doesn't matter. If you can just do it once, that's the potential that that you need to see. Mm -hmm. You just figure out how to repeat it. Execution, folks. That's right. It's it's doing all of the boring stuff
0: correctly. Yeah. And like Kevin said, people throwing the Simon Lazat lines on every single hole don't necessarily win every tournament it's the ones that throw the simple straight shots well they get up and down they putt and they're just consistent and they it. do it like a robot yep and i think you're getting kind of decent at that i don't think you're as good as you want to be no we're figuring it out though there's never a perfection in our game and that's why i think we we chase it so much yeah you're the man dude
1: no man you are i i really enjoyed this podcast yeah i hope. The listeners also did. I, I, think they, I think they will. You're kind of a charismatic, wonderful guy.
0: I think I'll probably have you on the show um, in the future for like a little segment. Sounds Maybe a good. little check-in. I would love to. All right, buddy. Well, hey, I still don't have any sort of sign-off uh,
1: lingo, um, so I'll just have Kevin say something. Thanks for listening to Brian's podcast, The Buzz, and we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. I love you.